for 2,000 years, Christians have been singing songs in all different kinds of cultures and venues in order to praise you, to worship you, to focus the mind and the heart upon you. And Lord, we do that because we want to joyfully connect with you and, and uh, give back to you our lives and our hearts for the sacrifice of Christ for us. And Lord, we also do so to prepare for the moments ahead, to prepare for the word, to prepare for the week ahead, to prepare, Lord, for whatever might befall us in this fallen world. So God, I pray that as our hearts now hopefully are tender toward you, as our minds are focused on you, that we might be prepared to receive your word. We've got a tough passage before us this morning, God. It's a passage that many of us are familiar with, this idea of a speck and a log. And yet, Lord, it hits to the core of what we struggle with day in and day out as followers of Jesus. So, God, I pray you might encourage us, challenge us, meet us in this time. May not one of us leave here today without giving a lot of thought and uh, even a willingness to act upon what we hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people together say, Amen. Good. Well, I love the story about a concerned husband who goes to see his family doctor and he says, I think my wife is deaf. She never hears me the first time I say something. In fact, I often have to repeat something over and over again uh, for her to hear. So the doctor says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home tonight and I want you to stand about 15 feet away from her and say something. And if she doesn't reply, I want you to move about five feet closer and say the same thing again. And I want you to keep doing this so that I can get an idea of the severity of her deafness. So the husband goes home and he does exactly as instructed. He stands about 15 feet away from his wife who is standing in the kitchen chopping some vegetables. And he says, honey, what's for dinner? And he gets no response. So he moves about five feet closer and he asks again, honey, what's for dinner? No reply. Moves five feet closer and still no reply. Finally, he gets fed up. He moves right behind her about an inch away and he says, honey, what's for dinner? She says, for the fourth time, vegetable stew. <laughs> See, here's the deal with that. We are all like that. We are all like that. We all have had experiences. If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning and I asked you to tell me when you could, we've all had experiences where we think it's somebody else's issue only to realize in an aha moment that the issue is ours. Nod your head if you've had that happen to you, where you think it's somebody else's issue and you realize it's yours. And though many times when that happens, it's funny, it's humorous, it's even innocent, it also belies the fact that there's a great temptation for believers to be very judgmental, to be judgmental of somebody else's issue and to not realize our own issue. And we have those experiences all the time in life as well. So, for instance, we might judge somebody as lazy and incompetent only to be surprised in the future by our own laziness and incompetence. Or how about when you uh, judge somebody as impatient and reactionary? I've done that only a couple days later to realize that I'm impatient and reactionary. Or this one's very common for Christians. We judge somebody as weak in the face of their own temptation only to be humbled by our own inability to deal with temptation just on a different issue. 
You see, here's the dilemma we face as followers of Jesus. Because you and I have a heightened and good value system now that comes right from this book, and that's a good thing because we're followers of Jesus, at the same time, it's very easy now for us to become judgmental and harsh with those who don't live up to or measure up to the standards that we now hold. That's a difficulty for the follower of Jesus. You see, unlike many people in the world who don't have a very high value system, ergo it's not hard for them to be judgmental or not because there's really nothing to judge, you and I are different. We have a value system, a moral standard, even a relational standard for how God expects us to act. The Bible calls it righteousness or sanctification, growth, repentance, call it what you will. There's lots of biblical terms. And yet, because we have that, it's very easy for us then to apply the same standard to everybody around us and get very harsh and judgmental when they don't live up to it. Uh, David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Research Group and author of the book Unchristian. And he cites in his book a study that was done from 1965 all the way to 2002 in which they found that during that entire generation that 87%, nearly 9 out of 10 of those outside the Christian fold said that the term judgmental would accurately describe the Christians they observe. Let that sink in a minute. 87% of people in Western culture who, don't, who aren't Christians see Christianity as very judgmental toward them. That's a vast majority, no matter how you slice it. And though some of you are immediately dismissive of a stat like this, I would encourage you to not be so quick to dismiss. Because even if this is just an onlooking world's opinion, or even if their feelings of judgment are skewed by their own guilt and sin, which could very well be true, the reality still stands that Christians can be awfully harsh and judgmental. Other people see this and feel it, and it creates lots of problems in our relationships, both with God as well as with those around us. And Jesus knew that we would struggle with this. Isn't that cool? He knew that when he came to this earth, provided a pathway for the forgiveness of our sin in order to get us on the road of righteousness that he wanted us to, he knew that we were going to struggle with being judgmental. And so on numerous occasions, he addressed this issue. And on one of these occasions, he asked a penetrating rhetorical question that's good for us to wrestle with. It's good for us to wrestle with it in this series in which we're looking at some of the questions Jesus asked. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is found about three-quarters of the way through the entire Bible. Uh, you'll see it's the first book in the New Testament. Open up to chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We have a pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and it's on page 812. That makes it easy for you. Also, we're going to put the Scripture up here on the screen. And so Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it and read what Jesus says about this idea of judging. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this idea of a log and a speck is something very common in our culture today. This is one of those stories uh, of Jesus, this illustration that many, many people are familiar with. In fact, this law idea of a beam and a speck is, is very common. 
And yet before we unpack this word picture of Jesus's here, I want us to first notice the context of this illustration he uses because it's very important. And notice that he gives us a principle, really a prelude point, if you will, to set up this idea of the log and the speck. In other words, he doesn't talk about the log and the speck till verse 3 there, you might have noticed. But in the first two verses, he sets it up by giving us just a straight-out principle. And the principle is simply this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that we need to be very careful when passing judgment on others. That's the setup point that's going to lead to this idea of a log and a speck. We need to be very careful in the process of passing judgment on other people. And so look again at verse 1. Jesus begins by saying, judge not that you be judged. Judge not that you be judged. Now, if you're still with me this morning, at first glance, Jesus seems to be suggesting here that we should never judge. That we should avoid it like the plague, drop it like a hot potato, step around it like you might a rattlesnake or a Gila monster in the Southwest culture here. I've had plenty of people over the years tell me, hey, the Bible says we're not supposed to judge. I always say where because I don't think they know, and they don't. But the reality is the Bible does say that we shouldn't judge. Jesus is really clear right here. He says, judge not that you be judged. And so what does he mean by this? Well, folks, I got to tell you, I don't think this can mean that he is saying that we should never judge. At first glance, that seems to be what he's saying, but that can't be what he's saying for two reasons. First, because in other statements of Jesus, he tells us to make good and right judgments. In other words, he's going to go on in other parts of his teaching, I mean, like just a few sentences from here, to make the point that we do need to make judgments in times. And so making good and right judgments, Jesus is going to say, is part of living in a fallen world. So, for instance, just to show you, just a few sentences after Jesus makes this statement about not judging, look at verses 15 to 16 of Matthew chapter 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. i got to ask you, how do you recognize something? How do you call a spade a spade without making a judgment? No, Jesus made it very clear that you and I are going to make judgments all the time in this fallen world, even judgments like how to recognize somebody's teaching and their behavior of whether it's from God or not. And then if you're not convinced, Jesus says it even more clearly in John chapter 7, verse 24, using this exact same word, judge. Look at that verse. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now we're getting somewhere. But judge, Jesus says, with right judgment. He's recognizing that you and I are going to have to make judgments at times. So again, going back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he can't be saying that we absolutely need to avoid all judgment. He has to be after something else, something much deeper than that. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter 7 and notice a second reason that we find Jesus is not telling us to abstain from any and all judgments, but this tells us now what he is after, and it's simply this, that Jesus is more concerned that when we judge, we understand the, spiritual, the principle of spiritual reciprocity. Now, that's really what he's after here, that when you and I judge, we understand that we need to be super, super careful with it, handle it very carefully, because there's a principle at work that I call spiritual reciprocity that's found very clearly here in verse 2. 
Look again at verse 2. Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, again, assuming we're going to judge at times, he says, With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. It's the principle of spiritual reciprocity. Simply put, that when it comes to God, there is a reciprocal effect to our judgments, a tit for tat, so that when we judge others, God says he's going to hold us accountable to the same kind and measure of judgment that we use. Whoa. I mean, folks, let that sink in for a minute. People ignore this passage. They try to get around it. They try to do exegetical magic with it. But it says what it says. And that is that when you and I dare to judge another person, we're setting ourselves up in the sight of God to be used by the same measure that we judge. God's going to use that toward us. And though commentators, experts on the Bible, bicker back and forth on whether this means a future judgment, you know, like when we die and go to the Bema seat, or if it's an immediate judgment that affects our relationship with him right now, we don't know. Jesus didn't make that part of it clear. But one thing that is clear that almost all commentators agree on here, at the very least, is that when we judge unfairly and harshly, this is going to have an effect on our relationship with God and on others around us. Our judging affects our walk with Him. He responds to it, either now or on the day of judgment, but either way, He responds to it. And so the prelude point is clear. Jesus is setting up his word picture here by saying, be very careful when and how you pass judgment on others. We all have to make judgments at times. It's unavoidable. In a fallen world where you rub shoulders with fallen people and have to deal with a runaway culture, but treat it like you would a hot potato and handle it carefully, or treat it like you would in this Southwest culture, like a rattlesnake or a heel monster, walking very carefully in and around it. So that's the prelude point. Now, once we understand these two opening sentences here, the obvious question becomes, how? How do we make sure that we judge carefully and sensitively? How do we make judgments that are gracious, sensitive, filled with love, combined with truth, Ones that, though judicious, don't step over the line into harshness and the kind of attitude that's going to bring upon a negative spiritual reciprocity. And this brings us to Jesus' wonderful word picture that you and I are all familiar with, the log and the speck. And in essence, here is the main point Jesus communicates to us, and that is that we each need to allow self-examination That's going to be the key phrase I ask you to latch on to this morning. Allow self-examination to create humility, empathy, and wisdom within us. That's Jesus' whole point of this question that he asks and the follow-up words. To allow us to have a life of self-examination that allows humility, empathy, and wisdom within us. So consider again Jesus' simple but profound word picture here. What John Calvin, the great reformer, refers to as an intentionally exaggerated picture. Or what R.T. France calls a deliberately ridiculous picture. Jesus likens other people's issues, the same issues that we tend to judge, as a speck in one's eye, while equating our own personal issues to a log, or as the old King James Version says, a beam. Just picture a large, large beam that's holding up a house. That word speck here in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in literally means a small splinter 
or a small piece of straw. It's the kind of normal particle that you and I are all familiar with that gets into our eye. That happens to us like probably once every month or something. And you and I both know when we get something in our eye, we can still see. It's just kind of annoying. And because we can still see, we then take our eyelid, as our parents taught us to, and we pull it down, and we make our eye water a little bit, and we, we flush out the particle. And that's the idea that Jesus has there. Some people have a little speck in their eye. They can still see, and they can deal with it readily, easily. But then he compares that with a log. It's the Greek word dokon. And it literally means a load-bearing beam or a large plank. It pictures here a very large piece of wood, obviously so large, don't miss this, that there's no way it could ever be in your eye. If it was to get anywhere near your head, it would completely block your view of anything and everything. Those are the two polar opposites here. A speck that you can deal with, still see with, and pretty easily get out of your eye, and a log or a beam that is so comical to ever think that could be in somebody's eye that if you even get close to you, it would be a total impediment to your vision. That's the picture Jesus presents here in which he then asks the rhetorical question, so why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? And his point is not lost. Jesus is saying that when it comes to our temptation and our tendency to judge others, to look at their issues and make an assessment upon their life, we need to first recognize our own issues, our own sin and specific areas of moral failure and struggle. And then, and only then, are we to even think about addressing or making an assessment of anyone else's issues or struggles. And don't miss the word picture here in which Jesus is declaring that each of us personally do have significant issues that are personal to us and that they are important when it comes to our relationship with God. In fact, they are like logs compared to another person's speck. That's a very interesting thing Jesus said. I mean, if some of us were there in the first century when Jesus first gave this illustration of a log and a speck, and we didn't know that he was the Son of God. Maybe we thought he was just another pastor. And we were in one of our more sparring moods. We might push back a little bit on this illustration. We might have been there and said something like this. We might have said, you know what, Jesus? I, I, I get the log thing, but why would you call what's in my eye a log, but what's in another person's eye a speck when you know darn well that they got a log in their eye too? I mean, some of us might have said that. Now, if he then said, I'm the son of God, a lightning bolt's coming your way, you would have repented on the moment. But the reality is, is that when you're thinking logically, you might push back on that. So what is Jesus really getting at here? Here's what I think he's getting at. Don't miss this. I think what he's saying is that when it comes to you and God, when it comes to you independently as a faithful follower of Jesus, you've got some issues that he and you know about. And they are log-like issues. And we'll get to what you need to do with those in a minute here, but just, just get with me to this part. You've got log-like issues between you and God. And when you look at another person, though it is true that they probably got some logs, as far as your vantage point goes, because it's just you and God here, you're to see their issues more as specks. They're not really specks. They got logs too. But as far as your vantage point goes, God's saying don't be looking over at them and trying to find their log. Focus on your log first. And if you do see anything in them, see it as a speck which will get your eyes off them because you won't see it as very significant and keep you focused on your log. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. 
He's trying to pry our fingers off of looking at everybody else and get our eyes on ourselves with an idea of self-assessment. He's saying, y'all got logs. Big, ugly, blocking your vision so that you can't see very clearly logs. And as far as he is concerned, our personal logs between us and him pale in comparison, again, for us personally, by looking at somebody else's speck. And he wants us to see it that way. He wants us to live a life of self-examination where we recognize and deal with our own glaring issues first way before we ever attempt to deal with somebody else's. Why? Don't miss this. Because recognizing our own issues first creates in us a humility of spirit, an empathy and a compassion on other people, and even wisdom that will eventually allow us to make fair, gracious, and loving assessments of those around us. Living a life of continual self-examination where we aren't afraid to take regular inventory of our own moral, spiritual, and relational lives is an absolute prerequisite, Jesus says, to any attempt to judge or deal with somebody else's issues. And I don't know if you notice this or not, folks, but we're not done yet. I mean, he's not just concerned that we recognize our log, but did you notice that he's most concerned that we do something about it? Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't just say, hey, recognize that you got issues and and that'll be enough. No, look at verse 5. He says, first, take the log out. Isn't that interesting? Take the log out of your own eye, then you're going to be able to see clearly to take this speck out of another person's eye. So the process of self-examination doesn't involve just recognizing your issues, but it's the entire process of seeing it for what it is, getting to the root of it, understanding why you do what you do, then embarking on a road to change that the Bible calls repentance. I mean, take the log out, Jesus says. It's only when we do that that we stand any chance of developing the kind of humility, empathy, and wisdom that will allow us to see at all clearly into somebody else's life. And though this is not completely clear in Jesus' teaching here, I believe that part and parcel of Jesus' point here, now this is cool, is that the larger the log you recognize in your own eye, the better. Because the larger the log, the more humility, empathy, and wisdom you're going to have in making judgments about anybody else. And actually, commentators point that out in this passage. They point out that because verse 2 talks about the measure for which you judge, God will measure to you, that that might even bleed over into verse 3. Basically, this idea of measure being, and the larger the log that you see in your own eye, the better, because it's going to keep you focused in a humble, wise, self-examining way that will do nothing but allow you to eventually pour into other people's lives. And this just makes sense. Most of us would agree that the people that we respect the most, tell me if this isn't true, the people that we tend to look up to and want to emulate are those who have been through a fair amount of brokenness in their own lives. They developed a kind of character that allowed them to be mature, loving, non-reactionary, wise, and faithful. They're the kind of people who have done regular inventory of their own lives and are aware of their own issues, their own logs, and we like to be around them. They tend to have the hard knocks of life through experience and through knowing His Word and understanding Him that allows us to truly, truly glean from them. Most of us like to be with them. So you might have noticed that I, um, I had us put some logs up here. 
after the first service, some people said, gosh, thank you so much for that wonderful, you know, uh, picture here of putting the logs up on the stage. And I thought, this was the easiest one I've ever done. Like, usually I have to think hard about some type of visual to use, you know, when it comes to, you know, the sermon. I thought, well, duh, like, let's go find some logs. So we went outside, and, and Don Balzer, thanks to Don and his crew, they, they, they went out Wednesday and found a bunch of logs. And, uh, and, and what I want you to notice more about these than anything is, is that we got different size logs. Give me a head nod that you guys see that. Don't, don't let that be lost on you. We got some really big ones, then we got some smaller logs, and then I had them get some branches and then only Tim Kimmel would think like this. Tim's one of our elders here. He, he, he encouraged me to get a pencil. And, and the reason he did is because he said some people think all they got is a pencil in their eye. You know, and, and, I, and I started to run with that. He shared that with me on Tuesday. And as I started to, to exegete the text, I started to run with that. And, 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 and here's what hit me, is that when it comes to this principle of the bigger the log, the better, because it creates more wisdom and empathy and humility in you, I thought, you know, one of the things you and I should wrestle with is what size log do we really today see in, in, in our own eyes, each of us individually? Do, do you see a pencil? Or is it a branch? Or is it a small log? Or is it a big old bean? I, I want you to go with me on this. I, I want you to pretend this morning, for some of you, you won't have to pretend at all. I want to pretend that you're having conflict today with, say, somebody you love dearly. Say a spouse. Say um, a good friend. And over the last few months, this spouse or this good friend has hurt you deeply. Not in a small way, but they've deeply wounded you, and you're reeling, and you are tempted to judge because you feel very strongly, and you're probably right, that they wronged you, and therefore there needs to be some consequences to them wronging you, and you're making assessments quickly about their life. Now let's apply Matthew chapter 7 as we go through this little exercise. Jesus says right at that point, right when you're tempted to judge, you need to look at the issues and the log in your own eye. If you're the kind of person who isn't going to hear Matthew 7 at all, your response to the conflict that you're, in right now, that you're in right now will basically be this. He or she hurt me. I did nothing. They're the ones at fault. And we all know people who do that. And if you don't see any log or anything in your eye right now, that will surely be your response. And that's indicative of a person who doesn't see anything in their own eye. But some of you are willing to own a pencil. Now, you've got to have fun with me here, because this happens to me almost every week. When I, when I ask somebody who's in the middle of conflict, even when they've been wronged, I'll say, now, 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 what's in your own eye? What can you own? And the person will say, well, Jamie, I'll own this. I'll own that I was unwise for ever trusting an idiot like that. <laughs> I'm serious. People do that in my office. No shame involved at all. And, and they'll basically be owning the pencil. You know, and I'll sit there and go, well, I mean, I'm glad you're owning something, but there's got to be a little bit more than that that you can own. Because that's a backhanded compliment if you ever heard one, right? You know, for a fat person, you don't sweat very much. I mean, that's like the same thing. You know, I'll own that you're an idiot. You know, well, that's not really owning much. That's owning a pencil. But then other people are ready to own a branch. Now, now, now here's, how, here's what a person responds to in our fictitious scenario when you own a branch. They'll say, well, he or she did this, this, and that, and they also did that, that, and this, and don't forget they did this and that. And I guess I might have said a couple of negative things in response that were unsavory, but that's about it. And I hear that quite often, too. When I'll say, hey, what, what's, what, what's in your eye right now? They'll say, well, they give me the laundry list of what the other person did. And then they'll say, and in response to that, I guess I might have used a curse word, might have had no thought, you know, but that's about it. That's about what I own, Jamie. And again, I would submit to you that's a branch. 
that's better than owning like you're an idiot. But the reality is, is that that's still not very much. You're just owning something after the fact. It's a branch. But then there are others who are trying hard to follow Christ, and they're ready to own a small log. And that goes something like this. That person says, you know, he or she really messed up here, and they really hurt me. But I recognize that it takes two to tango, and maybe I got some things to own here. In fact, I'm, I'm sure I do, but I really don't know what they are, but I sure do know the faults of the other person. That's kind of like owning a small log. You're starting to get somewhere. You're basically saying, you know what, I see their log, and I'm sure I got some logs, but I really don't know what they are, but I'm at least open to what they are. That's where some people get to. And then there's others, and this is what Jesus is after, who are ready to own the beam. And you know you're owning the beam. Now listen closely if you have a response like this. You know, he or she really hurt me, and I'm wounded, and I'm ticked, and it was unfair what so-and-so did to me. And though it might not be a 50-50 split, because I'm not sure I can own that, I know I got issues too. I'm impatient and I'm easily angered. I'm not very forgiving when it comes to things like this. And I know that I got buttons way before I went into this scenario with my wife or my best friend. I know I got buttons in my life. And those buttons were pushed. And those are my buttons. Those are from my childhood. Those are from my past experiences, and though the other person pushed them, they're, they're, they're my buttons, and i got to own them. And i got to address my issues way before I go half-cocked in my response to my brother or my sister, my friend, my spouse, who hurt me. See, that's the response, folks, of a beam. That's the response of somebody who's owning the beam. And again, notice very clearly, you didn't have to roll over in that. You didn't have to admit to something that wasn't there. You didn't even have to give ground trying to say that it didn't matter what the other person did to you. That's all la-la land. That's not realistic. But before you go to any of those things, Jesus says, own your beam first. Own your own unforgiveness, your own impatience. Own the buttons that get pushed in you that have nothing to do with the other person other than they happen to push them. But they're your buttons. And they're things that you've had for years. They just happen to push the right one. So the real question is, once you get this, is which is it going to be for you? Because I find Christians have all five responses. Some see no log at all, and they effectively own nothing. Some see a pencil that only faults them for trusting another person. Some see a branch that owns a reactionary response. Some see a small log that realizes they have something to own, but haven't looked deep enough and have no clue what it is. While others... And I love seeing this because there's so much Jesus-like humility in this own a full-size log that look deep and long into their own lives and they realize that their own soul has fallen issues too. And get this, that at the end of the day, they're not too dissimilar from the one that they're about to judge. And for Jesus and his followers, nothing short of a big old log will do. Only a full-size log that can create humility, empathy, and wisdom will keep us from unfairly and harshly judging another. And so to be really clear for you theologically-minded folks, let me read for you a quote from R.T. France, probably one of the foremost experts on the Gospel of Matthew alive today and commenting right on this passage here. He says, and I quote, It's not wrong to notice or try to help with another's failing, but the person who is unaware of their own greater failing is not in a position 
to do so. Amen? Let's take another run at that. Amen? Amen. That's Jesus' point in this. Dio Moody was probably one of the most gifted, godly, humble men ever used by God to form Christianity in our country. During the late 1800s, he reached out to lost boys in the city of Chicago and led them to Christ. He preached the gospel to thousands in the work camps, and he eventually founded the famous Moody Bible Institute, in which he is, they've trained tens of thousands of young people for the gospel ministry. He's just a great evangelist and pastor, respected across denominational lines. And at one point in his life, somebody said this about Moody. He said, I have more trouble with D.O. Moody than any other man I know. You know who said that about D.O. Moody? Himself. Himself. I have more trouble with D.O. Moody than any other man I know. And rightly said. Because as godly, as good, as wise, and as usable in the hands of God as D.O. Moody was, he lived in his own skin. He knew what he was made up, made up of. He, at the end of each day, he went to bed, and in those quiet moments just between he and God, he knew what a sinner he was. And so he had more trouble with that than any other person he could have ever judged in his life. What a great attitude to have. Let me ask you, who do you have more trouble with in your life right now? You or those around you? The answer to that question is going to determine the applicability of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It's going to determine whether you can receive the log and the speck teaching. And i got to tell you, one of the most practical ways that you and I can have success with this, now this is kind of cool, is by avoiding comparing our issues with other people's issues. Have you ever found yourself doing that? In other words, the thing that kills this log and spec thing is when you and I get to the point of saying, well, yeah, I know i got issues, Jamie. I mean, that's obvious, and I could list some of them for you. But you know what? My issues aren't quite as bad as their issues. Gosh, as soon as you find yourself saying that, you've abandoned the log and spec thing. It's like, duh, you, you've just gone from saying, well, I got myself a medium-sized log, but they got a big old beam right there when you compare your issues with their issues. So here's the answer. Don't compare the issues. Millard Fuller is the uh, founder of Habitat for Humanity. I got to tell you, I really respect Habitat. You know that, that, that show, Extreme Makeover, the Home One, Home Edition? I, I got to tell you, they've built maybe, I, I think I've counted about four or 500 houses for those in need, which is really cool. I mean, it's a great show. My son and I used to watch it a lot. Building houses for those in need, wonderful thing to do. Get this, Habitat for Humanity has built over one million houses for the poor in this world. Something that Extreme Makeover will never even approach Habitat for Humanity has done, and they don't advertise it very much. Millard Fuller is the founder of it, and he's a, he's a good man. And a few years back, he was speaking to about 200 seminary students and pastors at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And he was speaking to them about greed and selfishness as the reason that maybe the church doesn't have money to build more houses. And at one point, he asked a seemingly innocent question. He asked, and I quote, Is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And as you can imagine, all 200 of these seminary uh, students and pastors raised their hand. Okay, Millard said, then can you tell me exactly what size, the precise square footage, a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? And at that point, nobody was saying anything. And after a quiet moment, from the back of the room, a pastor spoke up and he said, when it's bigger than mine. 
<laughs> and I thought, he's right. He's right. That's the way most of us think, right? So if you live in a 2,500 square foot home, hey, that's okay, you know. I mean, that's an okay size to live in. But you know, those people live in 4,000 square foot homes, I mean, they got problems, right? You know, if you live in a 6,000 square foot home, which is common here in Scottsdale and Paradise Valley, you know, hey, hey, at least it's not a 12,000 square foot home, right? I, I mean, that's the way we think. And the problem is, is that when we think like that, we've just abandoned the log inspect thing. Please see that. We just, we've thrown it out the window. Because now, what are we doing? We're focusing on them, and we're comparing them to us. And before you know it, we haven't, we've forgotten that we got logs in our eyes at that point. Because again, we see what's in our eye is not as bad as what's in their eye. And so the answer to this is just stop doing that. Stop comparing yourself to another person. Stop comparing your car to them, your checkbook to them, your retirement account to them, the material possessions you have to them, maybe even your righteousness to them. Maybe we should compare ourselves, as Paul the Apostle says. He says, nobody judges me. I don't even judge myself. He said, it's the Lord who judges me. Isn't that a great way to think? I don't receive judgment for other people. I don't receive judgment for myself, Paul says. I allow the Lord to judge me. And so Paul's self-examination of his own life, which he did quite often, but was based on what the Word of God says and what Jesus said about him. And again, Jesus tells you and I, recognize the log. Going back to what we started with, with the idea of Kinnaman and what he says about Christians being very judgmental, I got to tell you, I think this is a significant issue before us this morning. I, I long for the days where the church, and maybe this church, would be the kind of church where we don't represent that 87%. That 87% of the people in Scottsdale wouldn't look at Scottsdale Bible and say, judgmental. It's a tall order. It really is, because again, we have such a tendency to judge, and we do have a heightened value system. But the more I think about it, I think it all comes down to how we approach other people. Amen? It's almost less about the judgments we make, but how we make those same judgments. So you might got problems with Howard Stern. I do. You might have problems with Hollywood. I do. You might have problems with secular institutions. I do. But then how we approach them is a significant, significant issue. I shared with a popular author the other day that um, one of the things that bothers me about Christians is that we use the words fight and war quite often in our vocabulary when it comes to dealing with an outside world. We talk about the fact that we're in a fight and we're in a war. We better win that war. And I was sharing with him, I'm not sure that's the best posture. In fact, I'm not sure that we can make the argument that that was Jesus' posture. This author, who's a very humble man, went back to his room. We were at a hotel together, and he uh, did a quick word search on a book that he's written recently. He saw me the next morning, and he shared with me. He said, you know what? He said, uh, I did a word search on war and fight, and I was so happy to find out that I didn't use them once, at least in the context of how you described. I tell you what blew me away about that event was that this person had the humility of spirit, the care enough about his witness to do an audit of his own life, to go back and even do a word search of his own manuscript to see what's coming across. I wonder what would happen if each of us did that with our own lives. If we just did an audit of our own lives, of how we come across to those around us. Again, not whether we make judgments or not, but how we make them. And I can tell you that recognizing the beam will help you tremendously. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that 
Along comes Jesus and in his earthly ministry asked dozens and dozens and dozens of questions that do nothing but get us to think deeply about our faith, you, others, and this world. And Father, I pray that as we're just in now week two of this series and talking about the beam and the speck, I pray, God, that we would all, at the very least, go out of here today given cogent thought to uh, what's going on in our own lives and that, Father, as well, we would have the courage to do some self-examination of our own lives. And Father, I pray that as we do self-examination, as we respond to it with obedience and repentance, that God, um, you might change us to be the kind of loving, truthful, faithful, obedient, and empathetic followers of Jesus that a lost world needs to experience. And that, Father, as they experience that with us and in us, that you might draw them to yourself. God, I think of that wonderful verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, may it be the kindness in us that leads others to repentance with you, I pray. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and his precious name. Amen.